Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Hello, Data Chief listeners. As you know, there is no off-season in data. We are always reading, listening, and learning from the thought leaders at the forefront of our industry. Today, we're thrilled to have three of them join us on this very special edition of The Data Chief, featuring experts who've authored the latest must-read titles for data and analytics leaders. You'll hear from Dr. Barb Wixom, Principal Research Scientist at MIT, and author of Data is Everybody's Business, The Fundamentals of Data Monetization. Next, we'll speak with Vin Vashista, the founder of VS Squared Consulting and author of From Data to Profit. Finally, we'll hear from Asha Saxana, founder and CEO of Women Leaders in Data and AI and author of The AI Factor, How to Apply Artificial Intelligence and Use Big Data to Grow Your Business Exponentially. All three of these guests have written essential books that get to the heart of our industry's most important subjects. Everyone should be sure to pick up these titles as quickly as possible and visit the Data Chief Hub for the full list of this year's 10 must-reads. Enjoy! The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Data monetization is a huge area of opportunity for organizations, but one that many leaders view too narrowly. Our first guest, Dr. Barb Wixom, brings a fresh perspective to this topic. Barb is a principal research scientist at the MIT's Sloan School of Management Center for IS Research. In her new book, Data is Everybody's Business, she details three ways to convert data into money, explaining when to use it and how to leverage it for success. Barb, welcome to the Data Chief. Thank you, Cindy. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show, a longtime reader and fan of yours and student of yours. But where are you joining us from today? Charlotte, North Carolina, and it is hot, hot. <laughs> well, it's all relative. You know, my son just moved to Austin and he has he doesn't like the hot weather. He's just literally baking down there. But Charlotte, of course, is gorgeous. And yet you are... I think listeners would think of you as joining from Boston because you're working with MIT Scissor. Tell us a little bit about MIT Scissor and that setup. So MIT Scissor, you know, it's actually the one of the oldest academic research centers in the world for business and information systems. We were established in 1974. So we turn 50 next year. Um, we were established by Jack Rockhart, Back in the day before chief information officers, really before technology, to help leaders understand what this technology thing was that was starting to emerge. And so our mission still to this day is to help companies succeed in tech. And me specifically, it's to help companies with their data. And so we have this lovely consortium of organizations who fund the research, about 100 companies. 
And because of their generosity, the world can read and learn from the resources that we develop in order to succeed. It's fantastic. So many great case studies. And and Barb, you and I go back, I'm afraid to say, I just want to say years, but it might be decades. Oh, it's decades. <laughs> I don't remember a time in my career when I did not know you, put it that way. Um, I started in the early 90s to actually study. My doctoral work was how do companies succeed in data warehousing, which basically was how do companies succeed in data. And 30 years later, I'm still studying that same thing. That, that's the same research question that I have. But through that time, I have I remember using your resources in my classroom to teach students when I was teaching classes on business intelligence tools and such and bumping into you in hallways at the Data Warehousing Institute. So um, it's it's been a, a gift to have you around in the field for, for my career. Oh, Joy. Okay, now you've totally made my day and I'm blushing. But let's get back to you. So why now? What inspired you to write this must-read book, Data is Everybody's Business Now? So First of all, this is going to sound really weird, but I have always felt like I have been put on earth to help people with their data. (laughs) And I know that sounds odd, but I have always felt that. And when I came out of my doctoral program, you know, back in 97, um, I would passionately explain to all of my students, regardless of the course, about how they need to take data seriously and, and I would constantly be showcasing best practices and organizations who have succeeded to really inspire people to care. And over the years, I, through my teaching, through my research, I have learned about some constants that matter no matter what. You know, I'm in our field. We change the name of our field regularly. We have new technology technology advancements that come out all the time. We have high profile wins and losses that we're reading about constantly. There's just a lot of noise and and challenges. But what I also recognize is, are there some things that really don't change? And we actually know quite a bit about how to do data well. And so after so much time, I felt like it was time for what I know to be in a book to help people more at scale. You know, I can always help people in my classes and in in localized ways, but how can I help people at scale? And I think it's by really putting important concepts and foundations into a book that can have a large reach. And, And why it really matters even more today is because of how many people have to be in the know. You know, it used to be, you know, I could have conversations with a data leader or a business leader or a select group in an organization trying to do something with data. Whereas today, I work with organizations where they want pervasive value creation happening across the organization in really dramatic ways. And for that to happen, you need to have conversations with the board of directors, the executive committee, frontline workers, business unit leads technology leaders, everyone. And because of our field and the noise and and all of that, it's hard to have just basic conversations without common language. And so why now and today it's so important is, again, if we can establish 
a vocabulary and simple frameworks and ways to think about data that then people can um, start with, then they can more quickly get to being productive with then let's figure out what we need to be doing in our context. I love your why now. Um, I want to unpack a couple things there. So first off, the degree that you're saying everyone is talking about data throughout the organization, all levels, we have said that this is the defining decade of data. Do you agree or disagree? I absolutely agree. It's almost scary. It's exciting, but scary. And and the other thing you wrote in your book about how these boards of directors, for example, will say, we need to be more data-driven. We could make better use of our data. But then it's the getting there that people don't agree on or where it's difficult. And that is why I love some of the frameworks you offer. Do you see a difference in the types of leaders that totally get it and know what the next is? Or is this just a natural maturation that every organization and industry has to go through? I think organizational leaders that are most effective are ones that appreciate that they don't know yet what the answer is, but they're willing to experiment and learn and be a bit patient to really figure out what data has to do for them specifically. And when we're putting a data strategy together, there's never a right answer. There's never some kind of vanilla solution that works for every organization. And so it's very personal for an organizational leader to be thoughtful and purposeful about exactly how right now data is going to help their organization move forward. So the thoughtful and purposeful, totally aligned there. Patient, I don't see a lot of patient leaders in this space. Maybe we have to compare notes. I need to swim in a different fish bowl for a while. But the other thing you mentioned was the degree of failures. Now, clearly in the 90s, spectacular failures of first-generation data warehouses I am not seeing many failures. I would call them more experiments in recent years. What about you? Well, I think we're saying the same thing. I think we're still seeing failures, but they're not spectacularly disastrous because we're, we're responding so much more quickly. We, we identify a failure more quickly and then we pull the plug more quickly. And then even better, we're learning from the failure and then doing something different the next time. Yeah. So the iterations are faster, which I think is actually a best practice. And another best practice exactly. or concept that you wrote in the book that I quite like, but I don't think fully sinks in, is as a basic business principle, organizations should generate more money from their data assets than they invest in producing and managing them. I agree, but I don't think we're even close. Why? Organizations will measure and manage what they think is important. And so over time, we have believed the cost of data is important. So we manage it. We measure it. We know how much the cost is. But not as many people have valued and appreciated the value and even the risk, frankly, of data. And so there isn't as much uh, formalized 
management process around those facets of data yet. That being said, if you look in organizations, kinds of organizations where value creation is important and known to be important, for instance, information businesses, you know, think about LexisNexis, Bloomberg, those types of companies. Think about digital businesses where their business model is dependent on different ways of value creation through through data. Think about data-centric business models like Capital One, for, for instance, where the whole way in which Capital One is effective is through the use of information for their different pursuits in the financial services industry. So if you if you find those kinds of organizations where there is a recognition and an importance around value creation for data, then you absolutely will find the management of value, the measurement of value, the reporting on value. And so my prediction and, and has been for a while is that as more and more organizations recognize that that value from data is, is important to the, the viability and success of their own firm performance, that's when we're going to start seeing the management practices uplift and, and be um, used in ways where we're really going to handle on all of this. Yeah. And so if I think about some survey data, for example, Gartner estimated that two-thirds of CDAOs are unable to articulate the value side of the work that they do. Or we had Bill Schmarzo, Dean of Big Data, on the Data Chief podcast. And we talked about how that cost, as you described, is easy to quantify, relatively easy. But the value side, if I have a boost in revenues from making good data-driven decisions, it's hard to say how much do I credit the data for those improvements versus other factors. Do you have advice there? So I would argue it's actually straightforward if you understand exactly how you intend to convert data into dollars. And so in the book, you know, I, I talk about a framework that was developed literally over the decades of research where instead of focusing on the thousands of use cases you can come up with for data, instead think fundamentally, what are the ways in which you can use data to convert to money? There are only three ways. You can take data, use it to change the nature of work, make things better, cheaper, faster, and through those efficiencies, you have realized cost reduction or you've realized an impact on firm performance, you know, better margins and such. That's improving. If you're wrapping, you are adding data analytics to enhance the value proposition of existing products. So you have a product, you add data analytics through a feature or an experience, and there's an uplift in value to the, the product user, which means that they will pay more, stay longer, more will come, they'll buy other things. So we're, we're seeing lift. So again, you have, in this case, it's a lift in sales, or you can sell informational solutions. And I don't mean just sell data sets. I mean, you can use data analytics to come up with some kind of new revenue stream that's solutions-based to bring in direct revenues. Now, when you know that, when you know that you're either improving or wrapping or selling, then you absolutely can establish ways to measure and then manage 
the data that's created. And there's different challenges with with each of these approaches. For instance, if you're improving, then what we have to really focus on is not just creating some kind of efficiency, but making sure that whatever slack is created, organizational slack, those efficiencies, that they're reallocated in some way where we can then point to a bottom line, you know, point to an income statement in terms of a reduction in headcount or reduction in inventory or some kind of metric that's being reduced that leads to financials. So in just a really quick example for people is that in organizations that understand this improved wrap sell and then are going out to achieve it, then their next step is to appoint someone with a financial background or financial acumen to then put in a methodology that makes sense for whatever the initiative in order to, in fact, make sure they're tracking and monitoring the value creations that happen happening because of it. Yeah. And I did, I liked the frame, you have multiple frameworks, but I liked the improving wrapping and selling framework that you presented in the book. I want to focus a little bit on the selling. Some people use the term data monetization more narrowly, and they're just focusing on the selling. You use it more broadly to include that improving wrapping and selling. But I want to come back and drill a little bit into the selling because we have this very interesting thing going on with generative AI and the data on which these models are are trained. And there was an article that recently came out about how now OpenAI is not even going to reveal what they trained their models on because there is a speculation that they trained it in part on some New York Times articles that they did not have license to do so. So if now organizations think before, you could say, how much is it worth if I create a new product or if I sell my data, my loyalty data? If we think about what is my data worth to be trained on for generative AI, I don't even know where to begin. Do you? Yes. (laughs) So first of all, before we even talk about improve, wrap, sell, you mentioned other frameworks. There's another framework that are five data monetization capabilities that you must establish or else you are not moving forward. One of those five capabilities I call acceptable data use. Mm -hmm. And I specifically do not call that data governance because I find that people view data governance very narrowly as regulatory legal compliance. And it's important to understand that although, of course, you have to comply in a legal and regulatory way, but you also have to incorporate ethical oversight as well as values-based oversight, which is the values of the organization and its stakeholders, including customers. So that piece, that capability, when established, and it needs to be, it will be addressing Any of the issues then as we start having conversations about generative AI, because the use of data will be managed properly, freeing us up to now move forward with our generative AI types of initiatives. Great. Thanks for explaining that. So do we think that data has a higher value as a training asset versus these others? Or are we too early to say? Where we're going in the research and, and what the book helps establish is a, a concept that we call data liquidity. 
And where we're moving in organizations is moving from just data, just, you know, this everywhere, ubiquitous. Imagine just water and you, we just have water everywhere. Um, but we're not going to go out and just drink all the water we see. We're not going to drink water in a puddle or even water possibly in a stream outside our house. We're going to go to water that has been prepared for drinking. It is the same thing with data where the focus these days in organizations is how do we create what we call data assets? And these are data assets. These have been, uh, these are cohesive sets of data that are prepared for future value creation. All right. And what we want are these data assets that are liquid, meaning easy to reuse and recombine. So as an organization, if we focus on creating liquid data assets, these are data assets that will have been, you know, vetted. They will have gone through the oversight of your acceptable data use types of um, capability. It will be these will be released and accessible through a data platform capability. These will be provisioned for use with your data science capability. And so liquid data assets is really important. Now, once you have data liquid assets, then you want to use the heck out of them because you can. You have permissioning and provisioning and such to make them hopefully used over and over again everywhere. And so this idea of, for instance, generative AI um, for organizations, the better and and more your liquid data assets available, then you would certainly want some of those to be used, for instance, in, in the training of different types of algorithms as we become more algorithmic in nature. But at the same time, what's so nice about having data assets that you've worked so hard to create and provision and permission is that they're also being used for all kinds of improving wrapping and selling initiatives across the firm. So that that's where we're seeing organizations go is is that that movement, you know, back in the day, we used to call it, we should have a data factory. Yeah. It's kind of like that today, although I hesitate to use the same metaphor because it looks very different today with, with these data, or this liquid data assets at the core. Yeah, it sure does. And you present so many useful case studies in the book. Do you maybe have one that stands in your mind that would be good for listeners to know about? You know, I, I always like to use BBVA, large financial services firm, global, 130,000 people, because BBVA started like a very ordinary company. You know, it started back in kind of the, I guess, 2015-ish. Um, it was like any other bank doing very traditional kinds of data work. There was data mining going on. It was fine. It was fine. In, you know, is doing stuff when it came to data. Certainly wasn't any kind of exemplary illustration of what to do with, with data analytics. But at the time, there was a threat. There was a lot of fintech activity and, and the leaders of the bank saw the writing on the wall that, that they just couldn't continue business as usual. They had to start thinking about ways to grow the bank. And they invested in an experiment where they sent a few people actually to MIT Media Lab. And they, they sent these four innovators with a, a data set of about 5 million de-identified bank card records. And they said, go and play around with this and see if you can come up with viable solutions that we could sell using data assets from the bank for growth purposes. And over time, through that learning process, BBVA at first recognized that there was enough there 
They saw some early wins. They actually saw some solutions using this data set. For instance, one was how to use bank card records to um, help with disaster relief um, allocation of resources. So think about the, the disastrous, you know, fires we just yeah. experienced or fires in, in, um, in Maui, right, is, is how can you use financial bank transactions to start identifying um, recovery, you know, as people are starting to spend and where they're yeah. spending and all that kind of good stuff so that so that the, or, the government can can really help. So anyway, there was enough of these really interesting use cases that seem viable that the the leaders of BBVA started a separate legal entity called BBVA Data Analytics. And they said, you know, keep going, keep investing, keep growing capabilities. Let's keep hiring talent into this group to see what else we can be doing with data. Let's start seeing how we can introduce these new learnings and capabilities into our organization to help us move in different directions. And very long story short, you know, now fast forward to today, that four-person separate legal entity is now BBVA's um, AI factory. They have reached the goal of every person at BBVA being trained to understand AI at whatever level is meaningful to where that person is in the organization. And they are improving the wrapping and selling with measurement and management processes around it. It's pretty remarkable. But again, they started, anyone could be BBVA. Yeah. And, and that's what I like about that story. It sounds like a great role model, aspirational. And I do think if there's a theme or a pattern that I see is sometimes for these more traditional organizations that they do set up a separate entity and maybe that de-risks or cuts through some of the technical debt, legacy processes. I've seen a few organizations do that. Barb, thank you for sharing your insights on your book. Let's do a hard pivot and a quick lightning round. Fill in the blank. Data is? Everybody's business, of course. (laughs) Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Generative AI is a wake up call. Ooh. All right. And finally, you choose based on your mood in the moment, either what are you most grateful for right now, maybe beyond the obvious, of course, health and family, or something that has just totally made you chuckle and laugh out loud? Huh. Um, you know, I'm going to give a shout out and much appreciation and gratefulness for practitioners who support academics in their research. People are so busy. Business leaders are so busy. And it is hard to express. In fact, I'll probably start tearing up. It, it is hard to express how grateful I know I personally am for people who take the time to fill out one of my surveys or open up their organization and let me stalk them sometimes for years and years and years um, (laughs) so that all of us can do this stuff better. And um, thanks to all of them. I love that, Barb. And we're grateful that they do allow you to do that so that the rest of us can actually learn. Thank you for being on The Data Chief, Barb. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. Our next guest is Vin Vashista, the founder of VS Squared Consulting and a leading voice in the world of data science and machine learning. He's here today to share some insights from his latest book, From Data to Profit, which was written to help data leaders learn to change the culture, 
structure, and operational framework of their company to get maximum value from disruptive advances in technology. Vin, welcome to The Data Chief. Thanks for having me. Where are you joining us from today, Vin? I'm in Reno, Nevada. Beautiful. Love it. Well, Vin, I have been devouring your book. Okay. Old school reading, post-it notes and all. (laughs) And I think this is such an important book for our time from data to profit. If you want to share briefly, why, why did you write this book now? Why now? Well, I think it's important for companies to have a single playbook. And that's what's been missing. We have technology teams on one side. We have frontline organizations on a different side. We have C-level leaders. They don't speak the same language, especially when it comes to technology. And we now live in a multi-technology environment. That's one of the big motivators for this. So I decided I needed to write the book, number one, to explain some very core concepts around this new technical paradigm and how it fits into strategy, how it touches really every part of the business. And because it touches every part of the business, the business needs a single playbook that everyone can read that aligns around a single set of frameworks that can be implemented no matter what size the business is and help the business to succeed with technologies, especially data and AI. Yes. And I totally agree that senior business leaders and people from the technology side do not speak the same language, even though CEOs now and their executive teams and boards will say, we have to be data-driven, we have to be AI-driven, but what does (laughs) that really mean and what does it take to make that happen? There are huge disconnects. And I think your book is a critical playbook in closing those gaps and why we've named it a must read in 2023. Now, I also think your experience in the industry and your background is quite a colorful one. Why you've taken control of your own destiny. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Definitely. So when I started, I thought I was going to graduate directly into Microsoft and go work in AI. Problem was that was in the 90s. And I ran straight into the dot-com bust. And a lot of who I am professionally was built in those early years where I saw a technology really try to take off, over-promise, under-deliver. I saw tons of companies just evaporate overnight. And it shaped my perception. And then 2008, 2009, BI, big data, and eventually analytics and data science became plausible. So I launched V-Squared in 2012 because there was really no data scientist job to get into. And I had to create it. I had to help really our side of the field define it, but not so much as a technology role, as a value creator for businesses. And that's a slightly different track than the majority of my counterparts took. And the most of the people in the technology field, especially in data science, went purely towards what's possible and really accelerated innovation, which was awesome. But on the ground level and in businesses, we needed to turn that innovation into revenue. And I realized really quickly, if I wasn't speaking to C-level leaders, I couldn't get enough budget. I couldn't get 
the sort of support that I needed in order to do the interesting work. And that pulled me into strategy, connecting the dots across the enterprise so that we began with strategy instead of beginning with technology. And I eventually really got pulled all the way into strategy. So instead of doing mostly R&D, now I am primarily strategy, product, organizational development, really teaching businesses how to monetize all this technology instead of consistently opening up the wallet, spending cash, and not getting back what they should. So I bring a pretty unique background to a lot of these conversations. Yeah, it is a unique background. And so I have a few more years on you (laughs) in our start in the (laughs) technology space, but also came from the business side. And I so I do remember the dot-com bust. And I do think we're at a point in time similar to when you entered the job market in the degree that the internet changed business models and now generative AI will change business models. But you, you're you taking the approach, the value-based approach first, rather than the innovation trigger, I think is a distinct one and an important one. Why do you think, though, organizations struggle with that? The technology is cool. I mean, you can't deny it. It's cool. It's interesting. And so we've we sort of gravitate towards what it can do that we've never seen before. If I gave you a rocket ship, your first inclination would not be, how am I going to make money with this? Your first inclination would be to get in and take a ride and go someplace. So that's our nature. That's why innovation is so exciting. That's why innovation enables us to do such amazing things. But at the same time, if you're in a business It's a different thought process. Just building a rocket to build a rocket or just building AI to build AI is the wrong approach because you won't get to the end of that journey. It's expensive. And at some point along the way, you're going to realize we can't keep putting money into this because we don't know when the returns will begin. And so that's the struggle. That's sort of the conflict that happens is one, by nature, we're curious, we're interested, and the technology is what drags us in. But what we need to do is figure out why we, why should we build this rocket ship in the first place? What can we do? Where can we go? And it's the same thing with AI. We have business challenges today. We have customers today, and they have needs that are unmet and underserved. How can we now, in a way that we couldn't in the past, service them? How can we create value now with this technology in a way that we couldn't do before? And when you think about it that way, it still has the same level of excitement. There's still the same innovation there, but it begins with business needs and customer needs which ends up creating value and the solutions are so much more engaging, not only for the business, but also for the people it serves. Thank you. And I do think in your book, use the term both top down and bottoms up. I always like starting with the problem statement. What is either the customer problem or the business problem or the supply chain problem we're trying to solve rather than, oh, here's here's GPT. What do we do with it? It should start the other way around, but do you think it's also that there has to be an education process or that the people who understand the technology do not necessarily know 
the business opportunity of applying AI. Now we're really getting into the purpose of the book and why why I think it's important to have written this at this time. Because we need, like you said, you're 100% right. We need education. We need to be teachers. But teaching happens in multiple directions, depending upon what part of the business that you're in. Some parts of the business need data and AI literacy. Some parts of the business, especially the technical team, need business literacy, need a deeper connection to the needs, the strategy that's driving. So we need new roles. And that's part of what I define in the book. But we also need frameworks. It's not enough to just explain AI and then say, you know, go wild. We need to look at strategy differently. And once we do that, that's really why top-down, bottom-up opportunity discovery, that's an important framework. But before that, continuous transformation, that's another framework. And that's really the top level is looking at technology. And instead of saying things like digital transformation, understanding that transformation is now continuous. We've gone from digital to cloud, data, analytics, AI, we have IoT, we have 5G platforms are becoming a, a an emerging technology that is really integrating its way into every business. Quantum is five or 10 years away. So if you're planning strategy, CEO of IBM said, now's the time to start forming think, you know, working groups and thinking about what this means. We're continually moving from wave to wave and Competition could use any of those waves. Startups could leverage any of those technology waves to disrupt incumbents. But vice versa, there is an opportunity inside of each one of those technology waves for a company to accelerate its growth. And so this combination of threats and opportunities forces a company to look at strategy differently. So it's not just the data literacy. It's not just the AI literacy. It's also providing frameworks to support the business making this switch. Some of it's cultural. And they, as a business, they have to change in so many different ways that if you don't have frameworks, it becomes chaos. And so it's education on one side, frameworks and structure on the other side. And those two together really bringing business literacy to the data team, bringing data and AI literacy to the rest of the business and creating that loop and that collaboration between the two sides that have never really collaborated effectively in the past. Yeah. So there's a lot there to unpack. A, a couple things or three things I want to dive into. You you differentiate between data literacy and AI literacy and technical literacy, all of which I agree with and is important. I have to share a quote that I loved from the book. At what point does a lack of data liter literacy become a sign of incompetence? Wow. <laughs> I think shareholders already are holding CEOs accountable. I think yeah. you'll see boards get increasingly involved in this as well. I'm not talking about turning CEOs into data scientists or software engineers, but they have to understand the technology well enough to see opportunities and understand its unique monetization properties. The second point you made are the waves and when to ride the wave and maybe how long. So I would say these waves are getting shorter and actually stronger. Do you agree yes. or disagree? I completely agree. 
you can look back into the 90s and you had a sustainable competitive advantage from technology because the waves were further apart from each other. And this is something that Rena McGrath, who's a professor at Columbia, wrote about in The End of Competitive Advantage. And, and she really articulated, if you have 10 years to get a return on investment, you're going to get a significant return on investment, no matter really what you do, even if you wait on the sidelines for a while. But you're right. Look at each one of these waves, the time between SaaS, mobile, cloud, data, analytics, AI, such a short amount of time. And we have many other technologies that were thrown in there. But two, you can't use traditional strategy because that ROI window is so much shorter. And so you need a new approach. And so that's, it's critical that you bring that up. The third point you made is the role of culture, something we talk a lot about on this Data Chief podcast. So I agree culture is important. It's also the hardest thing to change. But one thing that bothered me that you wrote about is, well, some companies just may not be ready for any of these innovations. And as I deal with some companies who are still not in the cloud and are cloud skeptics even, let alone AI. I mean, in an AI world, they're going to be even further behind. I feel like our roles as thought leaders is to is to push them, to lead them. Otherwise, they are at extreme risk of being legacy. So how do we address this? Meeting the company where their culture and readiness and maturity is versus driving that culture change. The first side of that is we have to make the reason clear. And I believe that too many companies will dig their heels in because, and just like you said, the continuous transformation, the waves are shorter. You don't have as much time. And so if you're not willing to begin the culture change journey, if you're not willing to start that process, you don't have enough time to sit on the sidelines and wait And so the urgency needs to be there. And that's something that as thought leaders, you're right. But sometimes we need to say it in a stark way to say, look, this is adapt or fail territory. And if you're not willing to adapt the culture, nothing else afterwards succeeds and your business is under threat of going away. So we need to, and again, providing frameworks is also important because culture is such a thing that, especially in the engineering world or in the C-suite, culture is fuzzy and they want something more concrete. They want a definition of culture. And once we define, here are the changes, here are the checkpoints, and here's the ROI, here's the benefit you'll see if you do this, I think we can drive change that way. So from one side, we're explaining the, the opportunity, but also the risk. And on the other side, we're giving tools to make the change that are solid and concrete. We're defining the problem and the solution, but we're also saying, and here's what you'll see. And if we can provide those specific metrics and KPIs to say, if you make these changes, here's the impact, then we have a lot more credibility and the adoption happens faster. At least it does in my experience. Yeah. So assessing those impacts and aligning to the why is super important. But I want to do a hard pivot, a couple lightning round things. So um, fill in the blank. Data is? Data is a novel asset class because it can be monetized 
multiple times. Same data set can be used over and over again. We're used to asset classes like oil. And that was the old metaphor. Data is the new oil. Where you use a barrel of oil, you, you spend the money, you mine it, you use it one time, it's gone. Data, you spend the money, you mine it, and then you can monetize it as many times as you can find opportunities to do it. It's a novel asset class. Fabulous. Chat GPT is? Uh, an interesting trend. Uh, I believe generative AI is at the end of its plateau. And we'll begin to see the technology that supersedes generative AI coming up very shortly. But the construct that it's put forward, that paradigm's critical. We have a new operating system. And that's really what generative AI is. It's a new operating system that allows us to have access to operating systems, gives, give us access to the resources in our computer. Generative AI gives us access to knowledge graphs. It gives us access to other models so we can use models and interact and engage with them in a more natural way. So the paradigm's here to stay. Chat GPT, I think it's come to a plateau and we'll see what OpenAI can do with it next. Yeah, or as a former Gartner analyst, maybe a trough of disillusionment. <laughs> um, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right. And and then one last question. Then, as you think about this moment in time, what are you most grateful for? Maybe beyond, of course, the obvious of health and family. I'm grateful for obviously still being able to do what I enjoy doing, and doing what I, really I love doing. I, the opportunities, not only just to write the book, but that have come after writing the book. The people that I've been able to meet, the relationships I've been able to build, uh, and with technology, you know, obviously we have to throw technology in here somewhere. Technology's made it easier to yeah. connect, to engage, and to stay connected. So that's what I'm grateful for is just at this moment, I have all of these opportunities and the capability to connect in so many different new ways with people. And that, that really grateful for both. It's a good time. Good time of, uh, you know, sort of looking at what's coming next. Good time for optimism. It is a good time. And I'm optimistic too. Vin, thank you so much for writing this excellent book and for being on The Data Chief. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Our final guest today is Asha Saksana. Asha is the founder and CEO of Women Leaders in Data and AI and the author of The AI Factor, how to apply artificial intelligence and use big data to grow your business exponentially. She joins us today to talk about her book, her framework for applying AI, and the importance of AI ethics. Asha, welcome to The Data Chief. Thank you for having me. And I know you travel the world, but where are you joining us from today? I am at Columbia University today in New York City. Okay, good. It's been really, really hot out here, hasn't it? <laughs> It really has. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Asha, so you and I have gotten to know each other for, let's say, the last three years, but you really are a force in the industry spanning decades. Tell us a little bit about your journey and role in the data and analytics and AI space. You know, like many of us, uh, I'm a computer graduate. My undergrad and grad is in computer science, and I started my career as a programmer uh, and very quickly, I launched my data management consulting firm. So I ran it for about 20 years and then built an e-commerce company and a, a healthcare software company. So really spent last 30 years in data and analytics, 
really hands-on getting engaged in the world of data and analytics and really trying to create an impact in the business as we work with data. And about 12 years back, I got engaged with Columbia University, Columbia Business School, where I served as an entrepreneur in residence and got very quickly engaged in being an adjunct professor where I've been teaching entrepreneurship, strategy, and consulting. And um, and I, I really enjoy paying back. And I think it's such a great way to pay forward to the next generation, sharing our knowledge. And so I've really enjoyed being a professor at Columbia. And Columbia, being local in New York City, easy to get to. And the students are hungry for knowledge and love engaging with them. And yeah. during the pandemic was the time when I actually jumped into writing this book, which we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And so you pay back multiple ways. So you and I actually met through another venture of yours, Women Leaders in Data and AI. Do you want to briefly tell everyone about that? You know, as I I shared my background, 30 years in data and AI, and during the pandemic, I think it was such a great time for a lot of us to reflect, reflect on our purpose, uh, our contributions, and what we're going to leave behind. And, And that was the time when I was writing my book too. And I was like, really heads down, uh, putting everything I learned in my career onto the paper. And then what I realized really, Cindy, is that only 18% of the women were engaged in writing the algorithms, really getting involved with the world of AI. And, and that started bothering me. And it was one thing that in the physical world where we live, you know, you and I have gotten used to being the only women in the room. Yes. And we make excuses to be, it's okay, we'll speak louder, we'll be seen a little bit more, you know, let's work a little extra hard and lead with content. And that's what we teach younger women is like, make sure your content is strong. But the the worry is when you take the algorithms and they exponentially show the biases with what kind of world we're going to leave behind. And as leaders in the industry, I think it becomes our responsibility to make sure we are building a fair digital world with parity and equity. And that really got me ticked. And I, I, my whole worry was, I'm the only woman trying to do such a big change. I can't make it happen. So I started tapping on the other C-suite leaders in Fortune 1000 companies who had 10,000 employees. And my hope was, I can't create the scale alone. How do I reach out to other women who are there and, and you were one of them where I had knocked on your shoulder and said, Cindy, please help. And so Women Leaders in Data and AI is an, a global leadership organization started in the U.S. And we launched our Europe chapter this year in January. And we had our in-person meeting right with AI Summit at IPG Media Brands in June in London. And we're expanding and I'm really excited. Yeah, it's great. So let's cut to the book, The AI Factor. Tell us what made you write this book. Why, why now? And we have listed it as a top 10 must-read book for data and analytics leaders in 2023. But why now? So first of all, thank you uh, for, for that uh, calling out the book. And I think it is uh, such a great time. And I, I always say that, you know, I started writing, I, I thought about the book for a while, but during the pandemic, I had the time and I had this reflection that, oh my God, if I'm gone tomorrow... I want to bottle this knowledge and the experience I've had in the industry into a book 
with the framework. You know, the advantage I had, Cindy, was that I was also teaching at Columbia. So I got in the habit of being an academia, you know, yeah. for the last 12 years. And so my thought was, how can I take the frameworks and methodology and put it into a way that the business leaders can understand the technology and really develop a, a savviness around how to engage with technologists. And also the book is a business book because the technologists can read the book and understand how to communicate to the business leaders and make sure that they can converse appropriately with the business leader and implement not only AI, but also the data behind it. How do you really get ready for implementing artificial intelligence within within your organization? I do see your professor um, disposition coming out in the books, Asha. It's very easy to read and you break it down into a number of really nice, clear frameworks, which is especially ideal for our business people who need to lead the charge here. So can you briefly describe the foundational one of which type of industry or company do you want to be in deploying AI? For every business, it's important to know where you are first. Really understanding, are you really looking at cutting costs in your business? You want to create efficiency? So you're really thinking about, do you want to be an optimizer? You really want to use the data, the power of your data to figure out how to create efficiency within your business. Or you want to be an innovator. You know, you want to launch new products. You want to look at the data. What has worked so far? And how do you really launch new products in the market? Uh, and I, I love that uh, Netflix or Starbucks will come up or Domino's will come up with a new product. And I talk about that in the book uh, because they understand the customer data and they know how to create and launch new products. Or you're really creating uh, a new marketplace. You want to really expand your marketplace. You're focusing on sales. And now you're an extender. Or the best scenario, I would say, is that if you're a legacy business and you really want to think about how you can break your business model. I, you know, in my book, I use the case study of Netflix, where Netflix keeps breaking its own business model. You know, they go from, I'm going to mail you the DVD to I'm going to stream uh, all the series to creating original content. And so what they did, they consciously broke their own business model. And I think that's where we are having the need to really understand where you are to apply these technologies to create the impact you want to create in your business. Yeah. So these four quadrants are a good way to think about who we are as a company and who do we want to be. Do you think certain industries lend themselves to a particular type? Like by definition is manufacturing or CPG maybe always just an optimizer or an extender? Or what do you think? A lot of times when, you know, you would see that companies or product companies or technology companies are always looking to capture market because they know that they can scale really fast. So a lot of the new businesses you'll see who are launching are really looking for scaling. So they really go into this extender model or if you're pre-IPO, you know, you want to go into extender model where you are really trying to get the market share possible as quickly as possible. Um, and then you have legacy companies who are saying, you know what, we want to not take too much risk, but we want to really focus on creating efficiencies. But there are also organizations like Uber who kept breaking their own business model and launching from Uber to Uber Eats. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's a good way of um, extending. I do have to chuckle because both you and Randy Bean, another great author, call these companies legacy companies. I hope they're trying not to be legacy. I might call them traditional, but legacy is like 
you're done. <laughs> we need a new word. <laughs> you know what? Well, the reason I think the legacy kind of fits well for me is because it shows that you're not ready to change fast enough. Yeah. You know? So if you're not changing fast enough, you're going to be legacy. Oh yeah, for sure. If they're not changing, um, yeah, they will be legacy and they're definitely the laggards. So as always, I love customer case studies. And if I'm allowed to, you can choose yours, but I'll tell you one of my favorite was because I'm thinking many data chief listeners know my fur baby doc, huge Bernadoodle. And um, you shared some specific benefits of how AI has helped best friends animal society. Do you want to dive into that or do you want to choose a different one? Listen, I love that case study because I'm an animal lover too. And I just, just, you know, and especially when I was interviewing them and talking to them about the case study, I was so heartfelt about their no-kill mission and truly thinking about how can these animals who are in the shelter, uh, we can reduce, they were really hoping to reduce the no-kill element. And how they did that was really based upon data. I mean, how great is that, that the data can have that kind of impact on animal welfare? So they tracked, they tracked, I think it's about 3,000 animal shelter, they said, and get the data not only from the animal shelter of knowing who the animals were, but they took the whole life cycle, all the stakeholders in the in the workflow, and understood and collected the data for the animals and reduced the no-kill to 96%, which is tremendous to really think about that not only making sure that these animals were well taken care of, they were healthy animals, and they were getting the adoption, they were going to the right house, and really thinking about how they can save these animals. So before that, before the, before this initiative, they did not have the right metrics to really focus on the no-kill initiative. So yeah, I love that use case because it has such a impactful effect of the use of data and AI. Yeah, yeah. So you described a little bit the why, Let's go down a level on the how. And so one of the hows, of course, is generative AI. And I think your book came out in February, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was like, how did she get ChatGPT and generative AI into the book when it was only taking the world by storm like three months prior or two months prior? Um, So were you prescient with how important this would be or your publisher super agile? So you know what I have to tell you, though, what really happened was that because of the COVID, the publishing got delayed. So my book was supposed to come out in October, but the printing press was delayed in publishing the books. So my publisher called me and said, you know, your book is not going to be out till February. And I was like, so be it. You know, like my whole goal was to get this book out in people's hand. It's fine if it's not in October, it's February. You know, it's okay. Who knew that Sam Altman will release ChatGPT in November and Microsoft would invest $10 billion in January and my book comes out in February. So, you know, they say being at the right time at the right place. And I tell you, uh, Cindy, I think a lot of us, you know, and and a lot of our uh, listeners would know that AI is not new. You know, we're talking about when we are so fascinated by generative AI right now. But if you really think about the AI, we've been using Siri and we've been using AI in so many different ways. RPA has been, been around for a while now. So we've been using uh, AI in all different fashion. But the, the book truly 
talks about not only large language model and generative AI, but also how to implement technology, AI, within your business. And I think that's the beauty that came out at the right time when people were having this conversation and the big comes out with not only why, but how. Yeah, yeah. So that I think is great. Um, Really good explanations there of what it is and why now. The other thing that you cover that I was very happy to read about is AI ethics. Tell us a little bit more on your unique take on why this is important and what we have to do differently. Listen, I my whole you know I, uh, whole mission right now is about using AI ethically and responsibly. You know, and that's why I end up creating the whole organization and putting my day to day work behind it now. And I think it is so important because a great example was Microsoft Day, the chatbot that came out oh, in 2016, yes. and it was such a beautiful example, right of AI going wrong. AI did exactly what it was trained for. The model, the algorithm did what it was uh, trained to do. Uh, and this was, for your listeners, uh, Microsoft Day was a chatbot on, on Twitter acting as a teenage girl, 19-year-old girl, who was listening to the conversation and having a conversation, AI, having a conversation about what was going on. And at that time, the whole if you remember the election time, there was a lot of conversation about segmenting certain type of cultures. And uh, Tay became very racist very quickly. And within uh, 48 hours, they had to bring it down because how angry and bitter she became within 48 hours. And so the impact of AI amplifying biases is really strong. And we've seen this in AI recruiters when they segment the female resumes and bring it out because only the managing director of banks can be you know a white male from Ivy League colleges. So I think we've seen more and more examples around it. Yeah, I call it bias at scale. It might be unintentional, but it is a reality. And, and we have to be vigilant, I think, as an industry to correct this. You also talk about one of the other house is data readiness. And this is really hard because there's data quality, there's data accessibility. But Ellen Nielsen, the CDO of Chevron, talked about a mismatch between expectations from business people and let's say the data teams that know how to get the data in the business people's hands. And it may take longer than what the business really wants. How do we bridge this divide or reset expectations here. I love that you bring this quote from Ellen because this is not only Ellen, but you know that this is such a common problem where business wants things now, give it to me now or yesterday. And the technologies are saying, wait a minute, there's a whole process here and they don't really get it. And and, and as I said earlier, you know, the book really was uh, for business leaders to understand what it needs to follow the framework and for technologists to really communicate that with the business leaders. So I had created this data readiness framework, which is in the book, and it has big, four big elements. It starts with being having a clear objective. So having your executive buy-in, making sure your goals are aligned with the business uh, strategy, and then you build your data and AI strategy. The second part is about the management, data management, making sure that you have the data accessibility, data quality, data security, and data governance. The whole MDM piece is important. And when Ellen talks about give it to me now, that's where what the process is missing because people, you know, the business leaders are thinking, 
data is getting put into the system. Why can't you just make it work? Yeah, magic. Missing pieces about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The data is not governed. Data is not assigned properly. The quality is not uh, good, and that all takes time. So I think the data readiness framework with four segments is really important to communicate. And I think that's a great way to really create the literacy. You know, so they say the educated buyer is a good buyer. And that's what you want to create for your business users. Yeah, and I do think that um, the governance side is an aspect of literacy or data fluency, as I like to call it. One of my favorite quotes from your book is that businesses that combine data literacy and culture with a holistic approach to stakeholder value are far more likely to employ AI and big data initiatives that have lasting impact. I think that really just crystallizes how comprehensive it is. It's not the technology that's just one part. It's all these other parts that have to work together. Absolutely. Uh, You can do it without one or the other. I mean, literacy, culture, and the business value is critical to make sure that it's a lasting impact. Yeah, for sure. All right, Asha, we're going to do a quick pivot to a lightning round. So fill in the blank. Data is? Oh, definitely power. Generative AI is? Engaging. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Favorite shop in Short Hills Mall. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I have to probably say uh, Starbucks because I keep going to Starbucks. My first stop in Short Hills Mall is uh, Starbucks. Okay, there you go. So for those from, from not from Northern New Jersey, this is one of uh, the tri-state area's most famous malls, huge, like famous people shop there. Um, yeah, I only shop there for like prom or something like that. <laughs> I've heard Taylor Swift shops there when she's in town. I don't know. Um, no, we'll have to really, see. Yeah. That's good. And then I, I always look out for her. Yeah. And I always like to conclude with one you can choose depending on your mood in the moment, either something that has totally made you laugh out loud recently, or what are you most grateful for maybe beyond, of course, the obvious health and family? You know, I have to say, uh, I can actually very quickly tell you both laugh out loud as soon as you said uh, and because we were talking about Ellen, I don't know if you remember, at our Wilda retreat, leadership offsite, by the fire pit, we all were sitting around the circle and Ellen told an amazing, crazy story. And we all were cracking, laughing out loud. Yes. So that's still my very favorite story. But what happens in a retreat stays in a retreat. <laughs> exactly. So we can talk about it. But that was something which, you know, I remember we all were going crazy listening to that story. And I'm grateful for what makes me cheery is when I hear these leader stories, when they, you know, come out and, and, and you've seen this, uh, Cindy, when the women are helping each other out and cheering for each other and standing by each other, it warms my heart because I still remember people saying that, oh, women don't help women. And in Wilda, we've seen, you know, how women rally around each other. And I just love the fact, even male allies, how they rally around yes. each other. I warms my heart, really. Yeah, it's both a powerful and supportive group. Well, Asha, thank you for being on The Data Chief. Thank you for giving back to our community in multiple ways and for writing this great book, The AI Factor. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, 
be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.